Is it okay to drink alcohol as long as we do not get drunk? Is the wine we read about in the Bible the same as the wine we have today? Is it okay to engage in social drinking as long as I only have a drink or two? Fortunately, God has given us guidance in this area and will help us to clear up some misconceptions about alcohol and will also teach us his feelings about the consumption of alcohol. In this episode, we will discuss what the Bible teaches about the drinking of alcohol and answer Bible-related questions submitted on this subject as well. So stay tuned. Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Hello and welcome to today's edition of the Bible Questions podcast. My name is Jeff. I'm one of your co-hosts. And as you kind of heard in the beginning teaser, we're going to be hitting an interesting topic, especially within our culture today. You know, the subject of drinking is almost a non-event, so to speak. I mean, it's very common. You see it on TV advertised. Uh, you experience it, you know, regardless of almost where you go to eat or socialize or whatever. It's just a very commonplace thing. But what we'll examine in today's podcast is does the Bible and particularly does God share that perspective? That it's just a commonplace thing. You can do it if you want to. No big deal. Uh, joining me today is uh, our other co-host, uh, Brian. Uh, how are you doing today? Hey, Jeff. Doing very well. And as you mentioned, you know, when it comes to drinking alcohol, this is a subject that really goes back to the very beginning of the Bible, and the Bible has a lot to say about it, and it is an important subject because unfortunately over time, uh, even with Christians, some have found the drinking of alcohol to be okay. And so we want to definitely look into that more, and so with us today, we would like to welcome Alan Hitchin, who uh, our regular listeners will recognize. He is an evangelist for the Holly Street Church of Christ and has been preaching for over 40 years. And Alan has had some really good studies on drinking alcohol. So, Alan, thank you for joining us to talk about this important topic. No, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to share some of the things that the scriptures have to say about this topic. It is such a tragedy. Terrible things that alcohol have brought into the world are probably innumerable. You read the statistics about 50% of this and 50% of that, as far as murders and traffic accidents and divorces and it's just alcohol is a real blight on the society, but for some reason, because of its pleasure in the world, it still has a, a beautiful veneer that I'd like to strip away in our discussions this morning. Yeah, so Alan, maybe we could just start out by talking a little bit about how far back the discussion or you know repercussions of alcohol are that we see in the scriptures. Well, as you mentioned, this goes all the way back to Noah. And Genesis has two just terrible events where two people who are highly praised in the New Testament, uh, Noah and Lot. Lot was called a godly man that God delivered out of Sodom. And Noah, of course, was the preacher of righteousness. And yet both of them, as a result of alcohol, did something they never, ever would have done sober. Noah, of course, is lying naked on his bed and creating a problem for his children and grandchildren. Lot, of course, committing incest with his own daughters because his daughters got him intoxicated and he didn't realize what he was doing. And so it doesn't take rocket science or deep scriptural understanding or knowledge to be able to understand why drunkenness is considered to be a sin in the scriptures. And of course, in our culture, anything that requires sobriety, if you are not sober, uh, you're going to be arrested for driving, for flying a plane, for even certain occupations. You just cannot be, you can't have that impairment of, of alcohol. So the question about drunkenness is something that no one could really make the argument against. Uh, God placed drunkenness in 1 Corinthians 5, in 1 Corinthians 6, in Galatians 5. And the one I would like to focus on this morning is in uh, uh, Romans 13. So, uh, Jeff, you want to read Romans 13 for us, verses 12 through 14? Sure, my pleasure. 
The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So Paul clearly, and of course the Holy Spirit through Paul, is clearly telling us that one of the works of darkness is revelry and drunkenness. Now we'll talk about revelry a little bit later in our discussion this morning, but drunkenness is clear. Drunkenness means you are not sober, that alcohol has taken such hold in your mind that you are no longer able to make wise decisions. It's what happened to Lot. It's what happened to Noah. And from all indications, it's what happened to Nadab and Abihu, because after they were killed, God gives the rule or the law that whenever a priest is ministering in his priesthood, he shall not be under the influence of alcohol. So it very well could be that even the terrible events that happened to Nadab and Abihu, alcohol had a role to play in that. And of course, for multitudes of Christians, that's enough. If the, if the drunkenness is a sin, then anything that could lead to drunkenness, we don't want any part of. Jesus made an interesting point in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, murder is not the beginning, it's the end. The beginning of murder is anger, and the beginning of adultery is lust. So the beginning of drunkenness is drinking alcohol. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is just how far down that path can a Christian go and sin has already occurred? And so that's what we are going to be addressing in this particular discussion that we're having this morning is exactly where is the line? Many people want to know where is the line between drinking alcohol and drunkenness? Where is the line between the first drink of alcohol and drunkenness, and where does the sin actually start? Well, and that's a good point, because I know a lot of times we will get questions to the website along similar lines, like, well, is it okay to drink so long as you don't get drunk? Or is social drinking okay? Or is having, you know, one or two glasses of wine before dinner, you know, okay, etc. Because in, in many people, many ways, people will see, well, the falling down drunk or the staggering drunk or the vomiting drunk is yeah that's that's not something we want to get into in fact in some ways even our culture sees that you know there used to be a time when you know the you know staggering drunk like on tv you know situation comedy shows you know was a laughable matter I think even today, in some ways, we've grown a little bit more sophisticated, so to speak. And we recognize that as wrong, you know, because of all the problems you indicated with, you know, divorce, murder, broken families, car crashes, et cetera. But people still like it. And so often we will get questions uh, like you're you know, alluding to that said, well, you know, where do you draw the line? Well, and that's a very difficult thing. I was reading an article this morning that stated Many countries have now gone to 0.05 as the point of uh, drunkenness where you can be charged, where you're no longer considered sober. So drunk driving is determined by how much alcohol is in the blood. Most states in our country, it's 0.08 for drunkenness, 0.05 for driving under impairment. Both of them are considered to be illegal. And certainly, if it's illegal to drive that way because you're drunk, then the Christian would have to say, well, then it would be wrong for me because drunkenness is a sin. And if my culture has determined that this blood alcohol level makes me drunk, then it's going to be tough for me on the judgment day to, to go before God and say, Lord, I wasn't really drunk. Uh, because I wasn't driving. Well, no, he just says drunkenness is a sin. Drunkenness itself is a sin. And so finding that point is what we have to do as Christians. And of course, most Christians that I know, myself included, I don't touch it. 
because it's too dangerous. It's just incredibly dangerous and there's no reason to be involved in alcohol at all. And we'll develop this as we discuss it. But the problem that we run into is that sometimes God uses the term wine. And of course, we have to understand that historically, the beverages that we have today didn't exist in the Old Testament. It didn't exist in many of the scriptures that we're reading about. For the most part, they had wine, which would have been fermented grape juice, which we call wine today. But even then, our wine is a little different than theirs because with distillation, we can get the percentages of alcohol much higher than they could. So the when we read about wine and strong drink in the scriptures, we have to be careful that we don't uh, apply what we have today to what they have because we've made some advances. I guess if you want to call them advances, maybe we might call them that the things have gotten much worse, but we make alcohol much more, much more potent and much more dangerous than they were having to deal with. Well, and I appreciate the the comment you made, you know, a few moments ago. I mean, we could get into, you know, a, a real technical discussion about, you know, what's the size of the drink, how many ounces, and what's the percent alcohol by volume of the drink, and what's your body weight, and what's your liver functionality, and all that sort of stuff. But setting all the, the detailed techie technical discussions aside momentarily, we, you know, should come back to, you know, what's the general principle, right? And, and as you've already pointed out, it's it's not only drunkenness, but things that lead to drunkenness. Well, and I was going to save some of this until later in the discussion, but what we have found, and if, if you look at the alcohol charts, you know, that the police use and that the hospitals use to determine drunkenness, to get a blood alcohol level of 0.2 and above, because most psychiatrists and those who have studied it, they tell us that even before the motor skills are affected, which is, of course, all the police care about, they're only interested in whether I can hit the brake fast enough, which I can't do if my blood alcohol is above 0.05. But what we've learned is, is that inhibitions and the ability to say no to a temptation that starts about 0.02. So whereas we might be legally drunk in the sense of what the government would call it if we were driving under the influence with a blood alcohol level of such and such amount, and God says, no, you're drunk when you can't say no to temptation like Noah and Lot. You're drunk when you make a foolish decision like Nadab and Abihu did. And so we, as God's people, we have to understand that being sober and putting off the works of darkness is one of the highest priorities that we have. And so if we know drunkenness is a sin, but we now know from medical science that drunkenness is actually a tiered thing, that the first tier is inhibitions, where I can say no to sin. The second tier is motor skills. And so long before I'm staggering or long before I don't make good decisions regarding motor skills, I'm already drunk in the eyes of God because a temptation I would have never given into or a, a word I would have never said or a conversation I would have never gotten involved in is now possible because there's 0 0.02, which is less than one drink. So many, many people are already drunk after one beer or after a small glass of wine as far as God is concerned. And just because you don't get into a car or just because you're not even aware of it, because that's the downside of alcohol is the more you drink, the less you can make good decisions. And so, you know, where do you draw the line? And I think that as we get through the, with this material, we're going to see that the, the clearest place to draw the line is don't touch it. Don't get, don't get near it. It's dangerous, and you don't know where the line is. Where is the line for being drunk? Well, I could get a shot. I mean, I can take blood route, and they can say, well, your blood alcohol is such and such. Well, what does that mean? The problem is when my inhibitions are lowered or I can't think clearly anymore and all indications of all the tests that they've done is that that starts a lot quicker 
than anybody can imagine. And like Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust, you've already committed adultery. And if you are angry enough to want to hurt your brother or say evil things about your brother, you've already committed murder. So what do we do with that when it comes to drinking alcohol? If we've already reached a point with the drinking where I said something I wouldn't have normally said, God's going to say, that's where your drunkenness started. Well, and, you know, all that certainly makes a lot of sense. But, you know, I would anticipate, you know, some people in our audience saying, well, now, hold on a second. Aren't there some passages in the Bible that condone alcohol or promote wine? I mean, after all, quote, unquote, you know, Jesus made a, a large quantity of wine. And I can anticipate people in the audience, you know, raising that question. Yes. And that's an excellent point. As you go through the Old Testament, you will find, for example, in Psalms 104, in verse 14 and 15, where God says that wine makes glad the heart of a man. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 7, it says, drink your wine with a merry heart. But then in Proverbs 20, it says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Now, when you compare those three passages, you see that there's a problem. How can wine make glad the heart of a man if it's a mocker and being led astray by it is not wise? And how can I be told in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 7 to drink your wine with a merry heart when that wine is going to lead me astray? Then we come to another passage, and I'd like that passage to be read. So, Brian, you want to read Proverbs 23, 29 through 33 for us, please? Uh, yes. So it says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. So we see in this passage that God links wine to some very terrible things. Woe and sorrow, contentions and complaints, wounds, redness of eyes. And he says, don't look at the wine when it is red, because it will bite like a serpent and sting like a viper. Well, that's what happened to Noah. That's what happened to Lot. That's what happened to Nadab and Abihu. And it's what's happened to multitudes of people who have wrapped their cars around trees, who have caused terrible things to happen. And so, again, we compare scriptures. Wine makes glad the heart of a man, but it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Uh, drink your wine with a merry heart, but don't look at that wine when it's in the cup. So we have what I would consider to be almost a contradiction here. Wine can't make glad the heart of man if it brings woe, sorrow, contention, complaining, and wounds. And wine can't be done with a merry heart if it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Now, some people say, well, the issue then is in the amount. If you only drink a small amount, then that won't be the problem. I don't think that really explains what's going on here. I think that the wine that he's talking about that is to be drunk with a merry heart and that makes glad the heart of men is unfermented grape juice or juice that has been so diluted that the danger of alcohol is not there. The alcohol in wine makes it an enemy and dangerous, and wine without alcohol is considered by the scriptures to be safe. And when we read about Jesus making water into wine, and we're told here that there were six water pots containing 20 or 30 gallons. So if you multiply 6 times 20, that's 120 gallons, and 6 times 30 would be 180 gallons of wine. Now, if this wine has no alcohol in it, then everyone can drink as much as they want with a merry heart, and it will be a blessing. 
But if Jesus made wine with alcohol in it, then 180 gallons of wine would have created a drunken fest that is, to me, it's a blasphemy. It's blasphemy to me when I hear people say, well, Jesus turned water into wine, and this was obviously intoxicating beverage, and he expected everyone there. Well, 180 gallons is a lot of beverage. It's just almost impossible to imagine the Son of God making intoxicating beverages to that degree. And so that's what we have to discuss. We have to discuss what kind of wine are we addressing here. Yeah, and it's interesting, Alan, you know, some might ask based on what you just said, you know, hey, is it possible for us to harmonize all of these passages? I mean, you read some in Psalms and Proverbs that talked about how it makes your heart merry. We read, do not look at the wine when it's red. So as you eloquently put, you know, drinking of alcohol and all that comes with it. But yet we also see passages like Paul telling Timothy to take, you know, a little wine for his stomach's sake. So, you know, is it possible for us to harmonize all of these passages? Well, and that's the difficulty. In English, we have three words. We have grape juice, wine, and vinegar. So if I go to the store and I buy wine vinegar, well, I know there's no alcohol in that. If I go to the store and I buy grape juice, then once again, I know there's no alcohol in that. If I go to the store and I buy wine, then in the English mind, and all of us would understand this, if if somebody says, go to the store and buy grape juice, go to the store and buy vinegar, go to the store and buy wine, well, we all understand The wine has alcohol in it. The grape juice and the vinegar do not. But unfortunately, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, they only have one word. So when we read that word in the scripture, we have to use context to determine whether this is wine with alcohol or whether this is grape juice or whether this is vinegar. And the context will always tell you. And so as we look at the various statements, it would certainly be fair to say that grape juice, now they didn't have that term, but grape juice can be drunk with a merry heart. Grape juice can be a blessing that God has given to us. And for the most part, that's exactly what it was. You know, when Jesus was at the Passover, we all know that nothing leavened could be in the Passover meal. All leaven had to be removed, and that would mean no leavened bread, and it would also mean no leavened grape juice. Well, leavened grape juice is wine. Wine that has been allowed, the leaven or the yeast has been allowed to work in that, and that's what creates the alcohol. Well, they could not have that at their Passover meal. They had to have things that had no contact with leaven. And they were wise enough, and so were we, to know that if you have wine, that's leavened. That's leavened grape juice, just like bread that is leavened has leaven in it. And so as we look at these things, we start to realize that even the scriptures make a clear distinction between a wine that is leavened and a wine that is not leavened. Unleavened bread means it doesn't have any yeast in it. It has never risen. It has never gone through the process of of corruption. And unleavened grape juice would be exactly the same thing. Now, some people tell us, well, they didn't have the ability to do that back then, but of course they did. They knew that they could this grape juice into a cold environment where the leaven can't take off, or like we do today, you can remove the yeast by heating it to a certain point that doesn't damage the actual juice. And so they had that ability. So when I read in the scriptures anything about wine that makes glad the heart of a man, then I understand that is unleavened. That is not a wine that has yet, it has not gone through the process of fermentation, which creates alcohol. Because when alcohol is present, wine becomes a mocker. Now, clearly that passage in Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Obviously, that's the alcohol. 
if there wasn't any alcohol in it, it can't be a mocker. Without alcohol, strong drink, well, what is strong drink without alcohol? It doesn't exist. So wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And the same thing with Proverbs 23. Who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaints? Well, nobody who drinks grape juice, nobody who puts a little vinegar in their water, they're not going to have woe, they're not going to have sorrow, they're not going to have contentions, they're not going to have complaints, they're not going to have wounds without cause. Well, who is? Who are these people who linger long at wine and go in search of mixed wine? Well, that's alcoholic wine. And so he says in verse 31, do not look on the wine when it is red. Well, we have fruit of the vine every first day of the week that is red. But that's not the wine that he's talking about here. This is talking about wine that has been leavened. The wine that has been alcohol has be, become a part of it. And, and that's the wine that sparkles in the cup and bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. So we have to be wise enough to understand that the curse of wine is alcohol. Unfortunately, yayin, which is the Hebrew word, and oinos, which is the Greek word, they can be used for alcoholic, non-alcoholic, leavened, unleavened, new wine, wine that has been fortified to the highest degree possible, and they only had one word. So as discerning Christians, we're not going to use a passage which is clearly talking about something that hasn't been leavened or hasn't been made into an intoxicating beverage. As it comes from the vine, it has no alcohol in it. Now, man can do things to increase the alcohol or decrease the alcohol. But the point is, the passages that are condemning wine are not condemning non-alcoholic wine, and they're not condemning grape juice. They're not condemning vinegar. They're condemning a substance that has alcohol within it. Yeah, Alan, I appreciate you mentioning about the uh, potential preservation methods. Because I know I've done some reading of, of people that would assert, as you said, there's there's no way they could have you know preserved things you know relatively fresh. Hence, by definition, wine therefore must be intoxicating. If you don't mind, would you mind sharing? There there was a third method that uh, occurred to me that I think you've personally experienced in, in your travels over to Africa. Oh yes, that's correct. Uh, sometimes in Malawi they can't grow grapes and they can't get grape juice, so sometimes. They will get raisins and they will boil them. But as a last-ditch effort, they will get wine and they will boil it. And boiling it, the alcohol comes out and there is no more alcohol. And then it becomes safe again. So there are means by which things can be rendered safe or things that can be rendered much more dangerous. And that's a serious problem. But as I mentioned, and I'll, I'll mention it again and again, the more alcohol that exists in a substance, whether it's whiskey or rum, whether it is beer or wine, whether it is any other alcoholic beverage, the more alcohol, the more dangerous, the less alcohol, the less dangerous. There's just no question about that. Uh, if you look at the scientific studies, they tell you one drink equals 1.5 ounces of 80 proof liquor, 12 ounces of beer, or 5 ounces of table wine. So 5 ounces of table wine, which, what is it? Uh, I think there's 16 ounces in a pint, which is 2 cups. So 5 ounces would be less than most of us would even consider to be a drink. And the same thing with 12 ounces of beer. One beer is enough, has enough alcohol in it to create the problem that medical science says impairment begins. I'm looking at this chart here. Even a 200-pound man drinking one of these drinks is going to be at 0.02, and all science tells us impairment begins. So the first drink already brings enough alcohol into the system where we are impaired. And if we're impaired, we're drunk as far as God is concerned. So it happens much more quickly and is much more dangerous than people realize. 
Well, and I think you made the point earlier. It's, it's one of those substances, like the more you get into it, the less you can discern what's going on with you. Well, it's quote unquote slippery slopes. And it's, it's just like all lust. Once you're under the influence of anger, once you're under the influence of sexual desire, things that were impossible become possible. As Jesus said, without anger, you're not going to commit murder. Without sexual lust, you are not going to commit adultery. And without alcohol, you cannot be drunk. You cannot be made intoxicated. And of course, people like to use Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake, but that's medicinal. And even we recognize there is a medicinal use for alcohol. We use it in NyQuil. And buying a medicine is very different from going down and buying a bottle of alcohol or a bottle of rum or beer or something like that. I can buy NyQuil and fulfill what Paul said. Now, I can overdrink the NyQuil, and then I'm going to be in the same problem with drunkenness. Same thing with mouthwash. You can rinse your mouth out, but I had a friend once who was an alcoholic, and he would use mouthwash when he couldn't get anything else. So anything can be turned into a weapon. Anything can be turned into this problem where drunkenness is the result. And as Christians, we know that's when the sin occurs, and we have to be wise enough to know where that line is. But if you think about it, if three ounces of wine, 3.5 ounces of wine, would cause me to be tipsy enough where I couldn't make good decisions, then Jesus made 150 to 180 gallons. Do you know how many ounces that would be? Do you know how many people could become so intoxicated that they couldn't even move with that amount of alcohol. And yet people with a straight face will tell me, Jesus turned 180 gallons of water into wine, and it was an intoxicating beverage. And to me, as, as I said earlier, if it causes sorrow, if it causes redness of eyes, if it's a mocker and a brawler, Jesus wouldn't make that. And so it's much more logical, scriptural, and true to the facts that this would be fresh, unleavened grape juice. This would not be a fortified alcoholic beverage that they have at some weddings today, which turns into a debauchery. Anybody that would ask, how much can I drink? Or, hey, if I just have a drink or two, it doesn't really affect me. As you pointed out, physiologically, it's proven, you know, after that first glass, if you will, it's going to affect you at some level. In addition to the inhibitions that you mentioned and, you know, the degradation, if you will, of your judgment, and now you start giving into temptations that you may not have, alcohol also physiologically has shown to cause you to desire more alcohol. So if you have a drink or two, it's going to cause you to want three or four or five drinks. Well, now you're quickly heading into that drunkenness. And then over time, people that drink and drink, well, they need more to feel the effects of alcohol. So now they're drinking a lot of alcohol. So anyhow, I kind of liken it to somebody saying, well, you shouldn't lie, but it's okay to tell a little white lie or so, you know, a little sin. As we've touched on, we have to be realistic here and we have to understand its effect on our bodies and just realistically understand that it's going to lead us down a path that we do not want to go. And it's such a, a sad thing to hear Christians argue or try to prove that social drinking would be acceptable to God when the reality is is that our own medical science has now determined that one drink has already pushed you past the threshold. Unless you weigh 250 pounds or more, one drink pushes you into impairment. And a lot of study has gone into drunkenness now. A lot of study has gone in how much is safe. And essentially, one drink puts a lot of people into what would be considered a fine if they were caught driving with that much on board, just one drink. Well, if our medical science can figure that out, then God, who is infinitely wiser and who knows exactly when the impairment begins, which would consider, he would consider us to be drunk. And unfortunately, one drink for many people is already too much. So the safest course, clearly the safest course, if, if you, uh, as Jesus said, if you don't want to commit adultery, don't look at a woman who's 
in any sexual way enticing because if you do you're going to have already committed adultery if you feel any lust and if anger is going to lead to murder then you need to stop it how much anger is okay well the scriptures do say be angry and sin not but it also says that anger can lead to sin so what's the safest thing oh i can get angry i'm just no i don't want to get angry at all and I don't want to have any sexual lust at all, and so I don't want any alcohol on board because I can't determine exactly where the drunkenness starts, but I know it starts a lot sooner, and so if I don't drink at all, I know I'm safe. But if I have that one drink, I may already be drunk. I may have already sinned, and so how do I want to handle that? Well, the way I want to handle it is I'm not going to I don't want anything to do with it. And I think the scriptures are pretty clear on that. Well, and even in some ways, we see that reflected in, you know, questions we get to the website. You know, I'm thinking about the classic question, you know, is it okay to drink? As long as you don't get drunk. And just that sense of, well, it's okay. It, it's an okay beverage. Yeah, at the extreme, you might get entangled with it. But in general, shouldn't it be okay? And as we've tried to make repeatedly in the podcast today, that's certainly not the view the Bible has. It's not okay with some danger maybe out there in extreme cases. No, it's it's definitely not okay. <laughs> well, I made up my mind a long time ago. You know, the alcohol industry, the scripture says don't look at the wine when it's red. Well, that's exactly where the alcohol industry wants you to look at the wine. They want you to look at the wine just before it causes drunkenness. And really, the only people that can use alcohol like that would be Christians and people who are aware of its danger, so they stop with the one drink. I am not going to allow the alcohol industry to use me as a proof that you can drink alcohol sensibly or you can drink alcohol with wisdom. Yeah, I think a Christian could do that. I think a Christian, any Christian could probably drink just a tiny amount of wine, but they would be causing people to stumble because most people can't do that. And secondly, the, you know, since this Mothers Against Drunk Driving and all of these institutions and organizations now, if you see me in a grocery store with a bottle of wine or a six pack of beer or a bottle of vodka, in my grocery cart, what are you going to think of me as a preacher? And what kind of an influence is that? And so we have to think about our influence. We have to think about the problems that we can create. I have read statistics, and I suspect they're true. I mean, they seem to go across the board that one out of eight people who starts drinking alcohol is going to become an alcoholic. Well, that's more than 10%. And so if one out of 10 people is going to see me and go on to become an alcoholic, I'm not going to be that kind of an influence. And that's another reason why I don't think the Lord made 180 gallons of alcohol. What kind of an influence would that be? The sad reality is that alcohol is a blight on our culture. It has created so many terrible things. If you could just add it up, just get on the computer and just type in statistics of drunkenness and see what it does. And so how close do I want to get to that? Do I want to get as close as I possibly can? Well, I'll drink, a, I'll have a drink, I'll go down and have them draw my blood and see where it is. And I just want to get as close as I can without going over the edge. That is not the way the scriptures reveal that a Christian should be. When God makes a line, we get as far away from it as we can. We don't get as close to it as we can. Well, and I appreciate you, you know, mentioning the, uh, you know, the alcohol industry, because, you know, certainly if you look at like uh, commercials, you know, everyday commercials, Super Bowl commercials or whatever, you know, alcohol is definitely portrayed as an attractive thing. I mean, you've got, you know, handsome men and women, you know, they're having a, a nice party, they're having fun, they're laughing, grab all the gusto you can get, I think was, you know, one of the taglines. And oh, by the way, well, maybe at the end they'll throw in a, and please drink responsibly, <laughs> right? You know, they, they they show they promote the positive, the 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 fun, the glamour, the good times, but they don't show the other side of it, as you're you know referring to in terms of the way people get ensnared and ruin their lives potentially, ruin their families' lives potentially, 
ruin the lives of strangers they just happen to you know run into on the highway, uh, etc. Well, and I had the privilege of being an ambulance driver for about 15 years, and I've seen the 50% that have wrapped their car around the tree, and I've seen the person committing suicide because the alcohol emboldened them to be able to do it, and I've seen the alcoholic who's been intoxicated and he has the shakes that he can't control and so there's a side of alcohol that is sinister there's a side of alcohol that is corrupting destructive and pure poison and i think that's why god says wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler and if you're led astray by it you're not wise. The only person who knows they're sober is the person who has not drank any alcohol at all. Because once you take that first drink, you don't know if you're sober. And so when God says woe and sorrow and contentions and complaining, well, as I said earlier, that's not grape juice. That's alcohol. The problem is alcohol. Alcohol is man's enemy. Alcohol is not man's friend. Yes, a little bit of alcohol will be for your stomach's sake, but that's all. Same thing with pain medications. I mean, we talk about using various uh, morphine derivatives for pain medicine, uh, for surgeries and for dealing with pain. But the problem is that can become an addictive thing and multitudes of people have lost their lives because they were not able to handle the danger even of using it for medicinal purposes. And so, like I said, Christians have a sterling reputation. Christians are supposed to let their light shine. Christians are supposed to be examples of good things and honorable things and wonderful things. And when you throw alcohol into that mix, it doesn't, it's discordant. It doesn't fit. It does not fit for a godly Christian person. Matter of fact, I, I believe I could say without any question, the closer you get to alcohol, the further away you're getting from godliness, and the further away you stay from alcohol, the closer you will be to being a godly, righteous person. They lead in two different directions, two entirely different directions. You know, Alan, we talked about this a little bit uh, earlier as far as in society. It's made it more challenging. You know, certainly when we look at the United States, for instance, uh, we had prohibition, right, from 1920 to 1933. I mean, we're talking about a constitutional ban on, you know, producing, importing, selling alcoholic beverages. And that's because most of America realized, as you're pointing out, the dangers and the, the horrible blight that alcohol can be. Well, eventually it was legalized. And, you know, as Jeff kind of alluded to earlier, it kind of went to a comical phase, the stumbling and falling down drunk to now saying, well, we know there are dangers. Go ahead and still drink. But yes, drink responsibly. And now we've even seen it taken one step further where a lot of states like Colorado, where we live in, has legalized marijuana. You touched on pharmaceuticals, you know, the abuse of pain medications and all of that. So I'm just making the point that, you know, society's acceptance of it and the, the glamorization through commercials has made it more acceptable and even to Christians, unfortunately. We just have to be conscious of that and also of the fact that there are even more dangers now. There are more things that can impair our minds like marijuana and pharmaceuticals. And as you said, Christians are to be separate from this. We are to let our light shine. We are to stand against that. And regardless of what's happening in the world or in our country, we remain firm against anything that impairs our minds. Yeah. And I think that at this juncture, I mean, we've been talking a lot about medical science and we've been talking a lot about consequences, but let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. And when you get to 1 Peter chapter 4, if you look carefully at verses 2 and 3 and 4, I think we get a clearer picture here of not just alcohol, but all of the things that the flesh can bring into our lives. And he deals with three different aspects of the use of alcohol and drugs here. So one of you guys, can you read uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 2 through 5? Yeah, I've got that. Of course, Peter, uh, or the Holy Spirit through Peter, uh, up in verse 1, talks about us and ceasing from sin. 
and then beginning with verse 2, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And I think that the more we study this passage, the more cautious we're going to be. Because, once again, when you deal with lusts, lusts are not the actuation they are the thing that leads to the actuation so i may never commit adultery but if i have sexual lust then whatever brings that sexual lust into my mind whether it's pornography or whether it is just going to a place where women are not going to be dressed appropriately anything that starts the lust and Jesus said, the moment you lust, the moment you look to lust, you've already committed adultery. And the same thing with anger. Well, here we find now it's global, that it's not just adultery. It's not just anger. It's every sin that a man can commit or a woman can commit. It starts with a desire. That's what the word lust is. It's a strong desire. So we need to stop living the rest of our time in the flesh for the lust of men. Now, you remember in 1 John, John talks about the fact that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but of the world. And unless we cease from these things, we will not live forever with God. So, as we start into verse 3, we've spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. Well, again, the will of God is that we are constantly sober. The will of the Gentiles is that we find things that will decrease sobriety and allow us to give in to things that we would normally be smart enough and clear thinking enough that we wouldn't touch. And so he talks about lewdness, which of course is generally tied to sexual things. It is uh, immodest apparel, it is lewd talk, it is songs that are vile, anything in the realm of lewdness and lust. But then in quick succession, we have drunkenness, revelries, and drinking parties. And these are three different degrees of alcohol. Alcohol at its fullest, most potent, dangerous is drunkenness. But revelries and drinking parties, these would be the social drinking that either leads to drunkenness, but maybe not. Maybe it just leads to people having more alcohol. Or again, the revelries is just enough alcohol that you're getting a little exuberant. Not enough that you couldn't drive, but your, your inhibitions have quit. And so you're yelling or you're acting in foolish ways. And so it's all here. Whether we are drunk whether we are just at a drinking party, which may or may not lead to alcohol, but it's, it's what we would call going to a bar or going to a party where there's alcohol. And again, it has to do with intent. If I'm going to a meeting at a restaurant for my business and somebody's drinking there, that's not why I'm there. But if I'm going to a party where I know that alcohol is going to be there, that's a totally different question. It's one thing to be in a situation where alcohol is possible, but I'm not going to do it, and that's not why I'm there. But those people who come out for a drinking party or social drinking in a home, that's not the place for a Christian to be. And again, verse 4, they're going to think it's strange. You won't come to our party? No, I'm not going to come to that drinking party because uh, as a Christian, I want my influence to be right. Now, I may not tell them all this, but that's my motivation. I don't want my reputation to be sullied, and I don't want my reputation to embolden other people to do something that I know is wrong, and so I'm not going to be a part of that. And so, yes, Jesus went out among the wine-bibbers and the harlots. Why did he go there? So he could convert them. But he didn't go there just because he wanted to enjoy their company. He went there as the physician who was there to try to help them out of that situation. And so we just have to be careful. Just because one person has to go to a restaurant and some of his co-workers are drinking, 
that doesn't justify him saying, okay, tonight I'm going to go to the bar and just sit there and talk to people. You know, we have to be what God demands. We don't get drunk. We don't go to places where there's revelry or drinking parties because that's not, that's part of the darkness that Paul said we need to get away from. You know, it's interesting. You make some good points there because we've received a, a question from a person out there by the name of Victor. And in some ways, I think you may have already answered it. He asks, is it okay for a Christian to attend a party where alcohol, social drinking, and dancing will be present even if you don't participate and just sit during the party and socialize with other guests? And, you know, if you want to wrap in that as well, you hear things like, you know, um, high school events like going to the prom, right? Well, and, you know, Maybe children of Christians say, well, I want to go to the prom and, you know, I'm not going to drink any and, you know, I'm not going to dance any. I'll just kind of, I'll just sit and socialize. Well, and of course, you're now combining lusts. You know, there are sexual lusts and then there are the lusts that lead us to enjoy alcohol and drunkenness. And there's a crossover point because if there are sensual, sexual lusts going on and there's alcohol there, then inhibitions start to be destroyed, just like happened to Lot and just like what happened to Noah. You get yourself into a situation where you would never move on your feelings. You know, the lust Jesus described is looking at a woman to lust. Many men have done that ashamed and hiding it. But when we become lascivious or when we become lewd, which is a term that means now I don't care if anybody knows that I feel that way, well, alcohol will do that more quickly than anything else. And so the last thing that I want to do as a Christian is be in an environment where sin is occurring and now my influence is in the wrong place not to mention the temptations that I'm setting up for myself. Many of man and woman has gotten themselves into a terrible situation just because they wanted to get too close to the fire. They went out among worldly people, and the next thing you know, what would have never happened at home now has happened. And so there's many passages in, in that, that the passage in Galatians 5 where he talks about the works of the flesh or the lusts of the flesh. And he describes them. And each one of them is an emotion or a desire that leads to a sin. Well, at what point is the sin going to occur? Well, Jesus says it occurs at the very inception of the desire. And so what am I going to do? At a dance, men and women, married and unmarried, are doing things that are designed to create sexual desire. I'm not going to be there prom, a dance, a bar, a party where people are having alcohol and dancing, that's not where the Christian is going to let his light shine. That's where the devil is going to try to put darkness into the Christian. And so my advice to people is come out from among them, be separate, don't touch anything unclean, and purge yourself of all filthiness of flesh and spirit. So these are things, like I say, there's lines, there's certain lines, alcohol for medicinal purposes, and then there's alcohol for sensuality and alcohol for things that are going to lead to sin. And that's where God says, don't look at that cup and don't get around that stuff. Well, and I think in a, a few moments ago, you also at the other end of the spectrum about, you know, going to a football game, basketball game, or going into a restaurant that happens to serve alcohol beer uh, as well. And perhaps being able to make a distinction with that as being a secondary, not strongly influencing kind of environment, as opposed to going to the bar, so to speak. I know there are, there are some Christians that will not want to have anything at all to do with going anywhere that has alcohol, which I can understand that from a conscience perspective. Um, unfortunately, I think in today's society, they'd probably not be able to even go to the supermarket where you can get those things now. Well, and, and this is a problem with every culture and every society. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, and he also talks about it in Romans chapter 14. 
and he describes the fact that things that under normal circumstances wouldn't even be a problem can become sinful based on what the culture is doing. And so he speaks of meat sacrifice to idols and the fact that some people couldn't even go into the meat market to buy the meat because they were afraid that it was tainted with idolatry. Well, we don't have a problem like that. Our problem is a little more complicated. Alcohol has gone from the liquor store, which is where it used to be purchased. And then, of course, the question is, can a Christian go into a liquor store to buy candy? Well, I would say that would be pretty foolish because there's so many other places to buy candy. Well, now the question is, can a Christian go to a grocery store that doesn't have alcohol? And the answer is probably not. Most cultures today, you can't find something like that. Well, Paul made it pretty clear. He said, when I told you not to be around covetous or drunkards, I'm talking about brethren because you can't leave the world. You can't get away from the people who are doing these things. But what you have to look at is, is this something that I'm doing where the primary purpose, like a bar, is to get drunk or a liquor store is to buy liquor uh, or alcohol. But if I'm going to a restaurant, again, years ago, you could pick a restaurant and say, I'm not going to that restaurant because there's alcohol. Well, uh, except for fast food places today, and from what I've been reading, they're even talking about now trying to bring certain alcoholic beverages in. So like Paul said, if you have to leave the world, then that's not possible. So when I'm looking at what I can do as a Christian, can I go to a baseball game, a football game, even though I know that, well, it depends on my mental makeup. If it's a temptation to me, I'm not going to go. If it's going to damage my influence, I'm not going to. But if it's this guy five rows up is drinking, but no one around me is, or I'm not, and no one with me is, well, that's a tougher question. And each individual, obviously, is going to have to answer those questions for themselves. And so if you're an alcoholic, I would recommend you never go anywhere where there's any alcohol. But if you're someone who has complete control, there's certain circumstances, as I say, like a business luncheon, where you know that some of the worldly people there are going to be involved in alcohol, but that's not why you're there, then that's where the question starts to get a little more complicated. So, you know, Alan, we also get questions to the site that are kind of have a cultural element to it. So, for instance, if you think about Italians who grew up and they were used to having a glass of wine with their meal, we have talked in past podcasts about modesty and how in some cultures their definition of modesty differs, for instance, from maybe what we have here in the United States. And so when it comes to that cultural element, Alan, how would you answer the question of, hey, you know, I grew up in a family that just had a glass of wine with every meal. Are you saying that I shouldn't even do that? Well, what are your thoughts about that? Well, as I said a few moments ago, medical science has clearly shown that one alcoholic beverage, one glass of 3.5 ounces, which is a very, very small amount, that amount of wine is more than enough to lead to drunkenness. And so as a Christian in my home, if I have any questions, I'm not going to do it. Now, I might tell mom, look, I'm going to cut this with a, a gallon of water and a quart of this so that there is no alcoholic component. I mean, we know that in the, old, in the New Testament that they did that. We know that that was part of how they would be able to use a beverage that otherwise would be dangerous. So I think there's ways that you can compromise with your family and still not violate the scriptures. As I say, just have a, a big pitcher of water and just tell your folks, look, but you know, most of us, we just say, hey, I'm a Christian now and I just don't want to get near it. I'm just going to have water. I would say that's the safest way. But if you're in a situation where you have to find a way to compromise, then just cut it with 50% water or you know even 100% water so that you know it's perfectly safe. But there again, just realize that this could damage your influence. It could damage your light shining. So it's something that you have to enter with trepidation. But some cultures, that may be what you would need to do. It would still be safe, but it wouldn't be completely violating what your folks are, what you're accustomed to. So it's a tough question. That really is a tough question. 
Well, and I appreciate you bringing up the influence part because I do think that's a key element. When you think about, you know, you could go buy non-alcoholic beers and non-alcoholic wines, but do you really want to be seen with pouring a bottle of red liquid into a wine glass? <laughs> you know, so anyhow, good points. Really appreciate you focusing not just on the effects that alcohol creates, but the influence element, the, you know, being a Christian and just being as far away from anything that could lead us into sin. Those are all so important. Yes, they are. Amen. Jeff, any final thoughts from you uh, before we wrap this podcast? So if you go to www.biblequestions.org, go to the menu item that starts with the word topics. Primarily for today's podcast, I would recommend three uh, topics. One is under D for drinking. Immediately under that, you'll also see drug abuse to handle some of the things we were mentioning regarding you know, prescription drugs, not to mention illegal drugs. And then finally, S for self-control, which really is the, if you want to get to the root of everything we've been talking about today, is the, you know, the foundational principle of having self-control, being sober, et cetera. So S for self-control, D for drinking, and D for drug abuse. Excellent. Yeah, really good resources. Please, uh, everyone who's listening, take the time to study this more deeply. Consider the points that Alan's made and make that decision to just completely stay away from alcohol. There is really nothing that it is to be lost, Alan, right, <laughs> by not drinking. And, and Alan, I just also want to thank you, Jeff and I both, of course, want to thank you for taking the time to come on and talk about this very important subject. Well, it is an important subject. And as I say, millions and millions of people have been destroyed because of alcohol. It is a door that we would be very wise either to never open or to close as quickly as possible because there's nothing but grief and sorrow that can come of it. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics along with two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at BibleQuestions.org.